0: me. Um, this morning what I want to talk about is, uh, so it's going to be a story of two people. Two people that Jesus encountered whose lives look like they are totally different and have nothing to do with one another except a huge piece of their lives they do share in common. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. How many of you would consider yourselves either risky or safe okay risky or safe and let me give you what i mean and this might be a little too revealing so you may not want to raise your hands at all after you hear what i mean you know risky people are people that are impulsive often make quick decisions Maybe they regret later on, but, you know, they don't like to wait around. They don't want to spend a lot of time trying to decide and go back and forth. You know, they like things like roller coasters. You know, they speak out, whatever's on their mind. Safe people are kind of the opposite. You know, they think about things maybe too much. You know, they're, they're maybe called the overthinkers or whatever. They don't like scary rides and stuff like, you know, how many of you would consider yourself safe? How many would consider yourself risky? Okay. Well, that's not too bad. That's balanced. Like one of the differences I saw, I saw this one meme and it's kind of like my wife and I, I started thinking about that. It's time to get gas when it's on half a tank. You know, when the you know, the gas thing is on half a tank, my wife starts thinking about gas a couple days after the light comes on, you know, she goes, she goes, well, you know, I probably ought to stop somewhere. And uh, I didn't ask if I could share that. So, okay. You heard it in case she gets mad later. All right. So this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter five. Uh, Mark chapter five is near the beginning of your of a New Testament. And if you're following along in the Bible, but I'm going to have all the verses and everything up here. Um, so it's Matthew, then Mark, second book of the New Testament. And in the story, Jesus starts out kind of just doing what jesus did he would walk around he would go places and he had this crowd of people that would follow him and some of those people are whom we would call the disciples even though anybody who followed jesus and listened to him were called disciples but you know there was the 12 and then among the 12 there were the three and we'll see that with you know, Peter, James, and John. So right in the beginning of this story, in Mark chapter 5, we're going to start at verse 21, and so we're going to talk about risky faith or safe faith, but both of these two people are both examples of what I would call risky faith. So it says, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, that's the Sea of Galilee, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. And then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there, and seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. And so Jesus went with him. Now, this is a big deal. Jairus was a synagogue official. He would be kind of the equivalent of, in a church like today, an elder. He was a volunteer, but he had some responsibilities, which meant he was well-versed in the faith, in the law of Moses, had a good reputation and standing in the community. And so for him to now come to Jesus and ask for something, let alone be pleading earnestly. Now, when it says that he bowed down, that doesn't mean that he was worshiping Jesus. That would be an act of just sincerity, submission, acknowledging that this person has something that you need. Now, this is huge because Jesus at this point in the eyes of many was just some other guy who had come along, who was in a long line of so-called pseudo messiahs, You know, claiming to be a Messiah, claiming to be something special, and yet not a lot of people are believing him, and certainly not the synagogue. And so he's pretty much betting his reputation and standing in the synagogue on the fact that maybe Jesus can heal his daughter. So it's very, very likely that he's tried a lot of things by now. People are praying, the synagogue is praying. He's probably gone to a few snake charmers or whoever could help him. And now he's going to go to Jesus because while Jesus could be a fake, could be a pseudo Messiah, there's a lot of pretty credible accounts by now of him actually healing people. And that's significant. And that was something they couldn't ignore. And so he's putting a lot of chips on the table and comes down and asks Jesus. He says, all right, my little daughter's dying. I don't care what people think, that nothing else matters anymore. If this guy can heal her, then I'm going to do whatever it takes. So that's what he does. So he says, please come and put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. All right, so let's go on to the next verse. So Jesus starts walking, and there's a large crowd following him because they're going, oh, this is going to be good. He's going to do something cool. We're all going to see it. So it says a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And so you can imagine Jairus is impatient. He's in a hurry. He's probably, you know, walking really fast. And Jesus is just kind of like, he's like, it's going to be this way. She's going to die. You're going to come, right? You're coming. You know, and Jesus is just kind of like, yeah, yeah, we're going, we're going, we're moving, we're moving. And so then it says, and a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. And she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. And yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. Now, when it says that she had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, what this means is that she was experiencing this ongoing state of hemorrhage. And if you know anything about that culture that she lived in, this has some significant impact. It meant she was unclean. And if her family were observant of the law, and she has a family, that means none of them can come near her. She was always in the state of unclean. If she has children, she can't touch them. If they had a house, she can't go inside. And so if that was the case, then that means that she's been isolated for 12 years. Now she's wandering into the crowd. What is she doing there? She's unclean. She's not supposed to be there. She's not supposed to be out in public. She's not supposed to be near people, especially not a big crowd of people that are all kind of closed in and following Jesus. So let's go on. And then, okay, sorry. Wait, wait, wait. Go back. says she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Back then, doctors, it was kind of hit or miss there were some doctors who were caring and knowledgeable and could help people. And then there were doctors uh, who basically were charlatans. Uh, They would do experiments on people and they would charge lots of money and they would gladly take it. And then if it didn't work, it was like, oh, well, sorry. So she had spent all she had and had suffered more as she got worse so she was suffering under the care of these so-called doctors. Okay, now let's move on to the next verse. So they're going along, they're walking along, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. So there was this basic superstition or idea um even among the Jews or among others that if somebody had the power to heal, all you had to do was just somehow make contact with them, okay? It's kind of like somebody who really had this power was sort of like this walking container of healing, and you just had to kind of get up close, turn the spigot, and some healing would come out, and that would fix you up. And then, you know, so she's thinking, all right, I'm just going to get right next to him. I'll tug on, his, on the cloak, and it basically means he would find the tassel of his robe, pull on that, and some healing's going to come out, and I'm going to get fixed up, and then I'll sneak back out. It was a superstition. It wasn't true, but that's how they were thinking, and that's why she's doing this. She doesn't know anything about Jesus, but she's following this idea, this misguided superstition, that that's all I have to do. I've heard that he's been healing people, so I'm going to just sneak up. I'm going to pull on it a little bit, get some healing, and I'm getting it out of there before anybody realizes who I am and what I'm doing and gets upset, and then I get in trouble. That's the plan. The plan ain't going to (laughs) work. So that's the plan. So immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. That statement is very, very significant. All right? Because I'm going to tell you this now, but then we're going to see in a little while, while it's significant. When it says that she was freed from her suffering, in the original language in which this was written, it takes the phrase that essentially meant she was ritually purified. It takes language that would be used to designate somebody who had been unclean, had gone to the temple, had participated in the the cleansing rituals, and now was designated as clean okay that's important because up until now she's breaking the mosaic law she's not supposed to be out she didn't announce that she was out she's in a crowd she's touching people she reaches up and touches a rabbi she's breaking rules right and left but it says her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering and then look what happened And at once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? So now what's interesting is Jesus kind of acts like he's just this container of power, and somebody flipped the spigot open. Why would he do that? Jesus starts actually playing along with this woman's perspective, misguided as it is. So he says, wait, power has gone out from me. Did somebody touch my clothes? Who touched my clothes? Now, if Jesus is God in human flesh, why would he ask that question? Do you think he already knows? I think he already knows. I think he knew she was back there the whole time. In fact, he's God in human flesh. He's known about her her whole life. He knows her name. He knows her condition. He knows she's back there, what she's doing. And so he stops. I felt power go out for me. Who touched my clothes? So in the next verse, then his, the 12, one of the 12, they decide to help. And they say... Um, okay, so he says, Who touched my clothes? Then go on, to verse 31. You see people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? And so this is where Jesus would go, Okay, guys, remember I said, When I want your help, I'll give you a signal. I didn't give you the signal, so don't help me. You know, because they're going, Well, Jesus, everybody's touching you. What do you mean, who touched me? And he's like, Shh, I'm working here. <laughs> And so he says, Jesus kept looking around to see who'd done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, now remember, she touched him, and she felt that healing power come in, and she felt herself healed. She'd been feeling one way for 12 years, all day, every day, and now it's different. Something just changed. Right when I touched him something changed. I think I'm healed. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, she comes up and he says, oh, who touched me? Well, now she's caught. This was not part of her plan at all. She's caught. Oh, boy. All right. So everybody's looking around, looking around. Probably somebody went, wait, what is she doing here? So she comes up, falls at his feet, She's trembling with fear, told him the whole thing, told him the whole story. She got nothing to lose, really. I mean, she took this huge risk. She could just get booted out of the crowd. She broke rules left and right. She's not supposed to be there. She's not supposed to be touching anybody. No one else knows what's going on right now except for Jesus and this woman. They're the only two people on the planet at this moment who know that she touched him that some healing power went out it changed her and it changed her life and only her and Jesus know about it so she tells him the whole truth let's go on to verse 34 then he said daughter your faith has healed you go in peace and be freed from your suffering this is a huge Huge statement in verse 34. First of all, when he says daughter, it comes from the Greek word paideia, it's the same, it means child or a female child. It's the same word that Jairus used when he said, My little daughter is dying. It was a very affectionate term. it would be like saying, My little girl. So here's this woman who has been an outcast, an outsider, unclean untouchable, doing everything wrong, breaking every rule, and how does Jesus address her? Says, my little girl. When my daughter was little, had a few different kind of nicknames for her, you know, that she always knew, and it's kind of funny because now she's 30 years old, like I think somewhere around there, she's 30 years old, and I still sometimes call her those little nicknames. And so Jesus says to this grown woman, my little girl. Then he says, What? Your faith has healed you. What faith? Faith in what? Faith in Jesus, at the incarnate God in human flesh, Savior of the universe, the creator, sustainer of the universe, pours himself into the form of a man. Does she know that? No. She doesn't know anything about that. (laughs) Does she know the significance of the term son of God and son of man? Does she know about the cross coming up and the whole idea of redemption? No, she doesn't know anything about that. She doesn't know anything. The only thing she knows is that she thought Jesus might be her answer and that it was worth putting everything on the line, breaking every rule, and going up and touching him, and it worked. That's all she knows. But he says, your faith is what healed you. Over the years, I don't know how many times someone has sat in front of me across the table, having a conversation. And they said, you know, I just feel like my faith is really weak. And I don't even know if I have any faith at all anymore. And I don't know what to do about it. And I'd say, well, I think your faith is a lot stronger than you think it is. First of all, if you're pretty sure your faith is weak and maybe you don't even have any at all, why would you want to talk to a pastor about it? You know, one time I signed up for to be on the mailing list for the flat earth society. Cause I was looking at their website and I was just kind of intrigued and interested. And I thought, you know, I, I don't think I subscribe to this idea of a flat earth, but I am very interested in how they explain it. You know? So I like, put my name, you know, to sign up for the main list, I would be interested in getting bulletins. And every now and then I go there and it's like, oh, well, that's one way to look at it, I suppose. And, um, but you know, what's interesting is that my faith in a flat earth is pretty much non-existent. I, I don't believe it personally. It's not my thing. If you're a flat earther with all due respect, I, I just, I respectfully disagree with that idea, but you know what? It never occurred to me to go to a flat earth counselor or leader and say, you know, I'm really struggling because my faith in a flat earth is really weak. And I feel like it's just almost non-existent anymore. You know why it wouldn't occur to me to do that? Because I don't believe in a flat earth. Now, when somebody comes and says, I really feel like my faith in God is weak and I'm really struggling. I don't even know if it's there anymore. I tell them the fact that you're even worried about it tells me you have more faith than you think you do. Because if you really didn't have any faith, if you really didn't believe, you wouldn't care. Does that make sense? You wouldn't care. It wouldn't be important to you. So the fact that you're thinking about it, the fact that it's important to you, means you believe it. You do believe it. And maybe what you're struggling is, is you feel like you don't understand it well enough, or you feel like you're not leaving it, living it out. But that tells me the faith is there. It's there. You have faith. And he said to this woman, this uninformed, misguided, misaligned faith that you just exercised, that saved you. That saved you. Her faith, just believing that Jesus Christ, even though I don't understand him, I don't know how he does it. I don't know why he does what he does. But I'm, I think he could be my answer. And a lot of people come to Christ that way. I didn't grow up knowing anything about Jesus. I didn't even know Easter was about Jesus until I was 19. So I remember when I came to a point where I really thought, you know what? Maybe Jesus is my answer. I didn't know anything about it. I couldn't have explained anything to you about Jesus Christ or what faith in that means at that point at all except that i think he's what i need that's all i knew kind of like her kind of like her that's all she had and jesus said that's all you need your faith that faith saves you go in peace and be freed from your suffering think about her suffering she had not only been suffering physically That she was suffering on all levels. Emotionally, what is it like to live as an outsider and an outcast day in and day out for 12 years? What is it like to be cut off so that nobody, anybody who you love is not supposed to come near you, is not supposed to touch you, is not supposed to be around you? Imagine what that's like to live like that day in and day out. So she's suffering physically. She's suffering emotionally. She's suffering mentally. She's suffering spiritually. She's suffering on every level. And Jesus says, be freed from your suffering. And so as Jesus said that to you today, he says, I want you to be free. I'm going to free you from your suffering. Think about, and I wonder, I don't want any hands raised. You don't have to blur anything out. Just what would that mean? What would he be talking about in your case? What kind of suffering would he, would, he, would he be talking about if he said to you, I want to free you from that suffering? Maybe it's guilt, regret, remorse, disappointment, anger, unforgiveness, Fear. Maybe it's illness. Maybe it's disappointment. Things haven't gone the way you thought they would. Maybe it's a daily ongoing suffering just under, how did I get here? There's probably a few different kinds in a lot of different cases. Just like Jesus could say to her, he to free you from that suffering. He didn't just want to heal her body. He wanted to free her from her suffering. Two different things. The healing that took place in her body repositioned her to be able to actually be free from all the other extenuating shackles that had come into her life as a result of that. Jesus wanted her to be free. And sometimes we live in bondage to things and we're not free. Let's say that I'm standing behind a locked cell door. The bars and everything are right there. I the door is locked. And someone comes up and lays the key right there and I can reach it. And that's the key to unlock this cell door. Am I free? I'm still behind the locked cell door, right? So am I free? How many of you would say, no, I'm not free? How many of you would say, yes, you're free? Kind of depends on how you look at it, right? I'm not free as long as I stay behind this cell door, right? As long as I don't, as long as I leave that key right there, no, I'm not free. If I take that key and unlock the door, then I'm free. So freedom has been made available to me. And now it's my choice. So I am free in the sense that the opportunity is there. So, I mean, I kind of agree with I'm free, but I'm not free. You know, I'm, I'm free. I'm enabled to be free, but I'm not free if I choose not to be. probably every day we face different situations where we choose to be free or not to be free jesus said to her be free he laid the key down right in front of her he set her up she's no longer unclean she's been healed she's been purified she's not breaking any laws but he said now he gives the the he puts the situation in her hands now. Be free. Let's go on. Verse 35 says, while Jesus was still speaking, now remember during this whole exchange with this woman, where's Jairus? They're walking along because we're going to Jairus's house, right? Because his little daughter is dying, right? And this woman gets Jesus' attention. Can you imagine Jairus going on? Okay, so it's just right up here. Wait, huh? What are you doing? Why are we stopping? Why are you stopping? Jesus, we're not there yet. Why is he stopping for her? She's been sick for 12 years. She was sick yesterday. She'll probably be sick tomorrow. Why are we stopping? How many of you would probably be feeling a bit impatient right now if you were in Gyrus's shoes? I would be. I'd be like, uh, what are we doing? Hmm? My tone would get really sarcastic, pretty demanding, and I, you know, would take that position. And so while Jesus was still speaking to this woman, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and said, Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Oh, good. We're already not moving fast enough for for her. This woman interrupts us, and Jesus, who is supposed to be this caring, healing teacher, the Son of God, supposedly, he stops to have a conversation with this woman. And now they're telling me it's too late. Oh, well, my daughter's dead. Whatever standing I had in the community and synagogue, that's gone. <sighs> Here I am. This is my life now. Verse 36, ignoring what they said, Jesus told him, he said, don't be afraid, just believe. Literally, it's translated in Greek as four words. Fear not, only believe. Fear not, only believe. Believe. Now he didn't treat the woman who came before him like that. He was really nice to her. He healed her right away. Why was that? Why was he like that for her? And then this comes, and he's going, "Jairus, don't fear. Only believe." And Jairus is like, "Only believe what? <laughs> She's dead." And Jesus, says, don't fear only believe. so they're already right they're pretty close to jairus's house and so he says he did not let anyone else follow except peter james and john the brother of james so they go on and they go on now to Jairus' house and they're coming right up on Jairus' house let's go on to the next verse there he says when they came to the home of the synagogue ruler Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. You see, in that culture, this is weird, this is weird. In that culture, anytime you had a funeral, even if you were poor, you were expected to have mourners there, and you were required to make sure that there were at least two flute players and one wailing woman. I do not know why. So for those of you who like classic rock, It would be basically, you've got a funeral, and you've got Jethro Tull and Yoko Ono, you know, playing at your funeral. Yeah, Those of you who know what I'm talking about are laughing because, yeah, what a combination. And that's what's going on, and then Jesus walks in, and he says, why all this wailing and commotion? The child's not dead, she's just asleep. This guy walks in and says, The little girl who we know is in the other room, she's asleep. She's not asleep. She's dead. So they start laughing at him. Let's go on. The next verse. Let's keep going. We're going to go on. It's going to continue in verse 40. And it says, After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother. And the disciples who were with him and went into where the child was after he put them all out. Literally, what it says is after he threw them out. It ekbalo in Greek. It means he threw them out. So it didn't mean okay, I'm going to need you all to leave now. Could everybody just you know exit quietly and in order? No, he's like everybody out. He probably wasn't very nice about it, and he probably just maybe gave him a little kick on the way out, because he doesn't have any, he's not interested in any of this stuff, and they are certainly not helping. Then he took her by the hand, they went in, I'm sorry, he took the, the child's father and mother, and the disciples who were with him, the three, Peter, James, and John. Now, just so you know, I, I'm not sure that Peter, James, and John were really Jesus's inner circle, because basically, Peter, James, and John were, were really liable to cause trouble. Peter was a fighter. He was very physical. And if you made him, and he would say stupid things most of the time. James and John are both described as having anger issues, literally. Okay. Sons of thunder, because they got mad a lot. I think Peter, James, and John, he never wanted to leave alone with the others. Because you had guys. You know, you had a tax collector in there. You had a zealot in the group. And, you know, Jesus would leave and he'd come back and he's probably going, okay, someone's going to have a black eye. Everyone's going to be mad at Peter. He'll be sitting over there. James and John will be ranting and going on and on. So I think he would have Peter, James, and John stay with him because it was like that kid in your class, whenever you went on a field trip, he was the kid that always had to sit next to the teacher in the front row of the bus because he's going to get in trouble if he doesn't. And so I think sometimes with Peter, James, and John, it was Jesus like, you guys come with me because I cannot trust you. I need to have you always with an arm's reach because you're going to do stupid stuff if I'm not there. Just a theory. Just a theory. All right. So he takes them, takes the girl by the hand, and he says, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stands up and walks around. At this, they were completely astonished. She's not dead anymore. Whatever she was a minute ago, she's not now. And so this little girl's parents, what just happened? Let's go on to verse 43. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this, and told them to give her something to eat. That's kind of weird, isn't it? He just healed her. This is incredible. Oh, and don't tell anybody. Remember all those people that just got kicked out? Do you think they all went home? No, they're out in the front yard trying to get a peek in the window. What's going on? Do you see anything? Are they saying anything? What are they doing? What are they doing? I don't know. They went in the other room. I can't see. So they're all right there. Now, when they see that little girl playing out in the front yard, (laughs) the one that they said was dead a few minutes ago, you think they're going to know? They're going to figure it out. Do you think they'll be talking about it? Of course they're going to be talking about it. Don't tell anyone about this. And then he said, give her something to eat. Like, well, okay. I mean, if she's hungry, sure. But why is that? You know, okay. Okay. First thing is this. The reason he said, give her something to eat was so that they would know that this was not a figment of their imagination. It was very common belief that, again, in both among Jewish people and among all the different cultures, that everybody had this phantasm or an apparition. And so sometimes when they would see something like this, might like, go, oh, it wasn't her. It was just her ghost or her phantasm. But that would not eat so he said give her something to eat so you'll know that this is she's real flesh and blood it's not an illusion it seems kind of strange but it made sense to them the reason he said don't tell anybody about this i believe is because he didn't need somebody else representing him because think about it he says oh yeah she was laying right on this bed right on this sheet and he healed her well then we must bow down and worship that sheet you think that wouldn't happen? It happens all the time. I've got a newspaper clipping of a story in New Mexico of a woman who fried tortillas, and one of the tortillas came out looking like the face of Jesus, as if we have pictures, and supposedly it looked like the face of Jesus on a tortilla, and so she took it to the local priest who blessed it, and she made a little shrine for the tortilla on this this little pedestal, put lots of cotton balls around it because they look and feel like clouds and, you know, very spiritual looking, put a glass cover over it and people lined up to come kneel and pray before the Jesus tortilla. And so Jesus is like, don't tell anybody about what happened because they're just going to get fixated on everything but what happened. We don't need people coming in and worshiping the bed and worshiping the sheet because that's not the issue. And so that's why Jesus would often say, Don't tell anybody about this. He didn't need other people doing his marketing, basically, <laughs> misrepresenting him, not getting it right. And so here you have two people, completely different backgrounds, completely different contexts. You have a synagogue official, a good Jew in good standing. And then you have this woman over here who's been unclean for 12 years. She's an outcast. She's an outsider. She doesn't count. They both come to Jesus. Here's some things about both Jairus and this woman. The number one, first thing is this. Neither of them understood who Jesus was. Neither of them knew about jesus they didn't realize that yet i mean even the 12 who followed him around every day who camped out with him at night they didn't get it either and they had more exposure and more information than anybody and they were still trying to put it all together but neither of these two people knew who jesus was second thing is this both of them believed that jesus was what they needed they didn't know much about jesus but they believed That he was what they needed. Third thing is this. Jesus accepted them where they were at. Right where they were at. He didn't say, yeah, you know, I would love to be able to help you, but you need to go to Sunday school or something for a while because you don't know much and you got to get boned up on this. No, he didn't say that. He didn't correct any theology. He didn't say, look, girl, you know, You slide in here, you're breaking every rule. You're following some misguided superstition. What are you doing? Do you even realize who I am? Well, no, of course not. Neither one of them really did. And the third thing is this. Jesus accepted them where they were at. He met them right where they were at. Didn't ask anything of them at all. The fact that they were willing to believe that Jesus could be their answer, that's all they had. And he accepted them and met them right where they're at. And then he did this. He affirmed their faith. As misinformed, misguided as their faith was, he affirmed it. Your faith is huge. And so when you're tempted to think, my faith is weak, maybe I don't really believe. Your faith is... Stronger than you think it is. And God meets you right where you're at. He knows about your faith. He knows how much there is to it. He knows what it lacks. And He wants and He accepts your faith. He meets you right where you're at. He's not asking you to go get qualified. He's not saying, well, you got to go get this first before you can say you have faith in me. No. Wherever you're at, Wherever you've been, whatever baggage you're collected along the way and you're currently carrying, Jesus is like, all right, just bring it all, bring it all, come on, come on, bring it all up. You're not gonna scare me off. You're not gonna tell him anything he's never heard, you're not gonna show him anything he's ever seen or he's never seen. And he accepts you right where you're at. And whatever you have as far as faith, he affirms that. And whether that's something you need to hear about yourself, or maybe it's something you need to hear about someone else. I remember one time I was in a class or a group Bible study with a whole bunch of people. Most of them have been going to church all their lives. And I said, well, what does somebody really need to understand about Jesus before they can really say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior? And we filled the whiteboard with probably about a year and a half worth of seminary classes. And I said, wow. Well, that pretty much knocks out anybody who said they believe in Jesus for the first two centuries after the resurrection, because none of them understood most of the stuff. And then I wiped it all off. And I went to the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, and it said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And so when my dad was dying, and I asked him if he, and I knew that he believed, and I said, Dad, do you want to be baptized? He said, okay. That's what I asked him. I said, Dad, do you believe Jesus is Lord? He said, yes. Do you believe that God rose him from the dead? So, I baptized based on that. So, whatever shape your faith is in, God meets you right there and God invites you to bring that to him. Whatever place that you're in, Jesus is your answer. And he wants to be your answer. He's not asking you to go do anything first just let him be your answer and if you're suffering in any way jesus wants to free you and if you have questions about any of these things if you're struggling without with any of these things if you need to process any of these things that's why this church is here And I know Rich and Carly and Ned and David and several others here well enough to know. If you've got questions and you could use some help processing all this, figuring out what it means for you, all you have to do is ask. That's all you have to do. If you want to get in touch with me for whatever reason, Rich, Jordan, they know how to find me. They'll point you to me. But if... All I can say anything this morning is this. Whatever your faith is, whatever shape it's in, it's enough. Bring it to God. He'll accept you. He'll affirm it. And he's ready to start working no matter what. Wherever you've been, whatever you're carrying, wherever you're headed, he meets you right there. Let's pray to you. God, thank you for your grace and mercy in our lives. Thank you for your love and forgiveness. And thank you, God, that you are constantly wanting to pour all of those things into us all day, every day, top to bottom, side to side, whether we're asking for them or not. And God, for each person in this room, however they feel about their faith, I believe they have more faith than they realize, and that wherever they're at, wherever they've been, whatever they're carrying, whatever they're bringing, you are ready for it, and you are accepting them, inviting them, wherever they're at, to come to you, and to be free from whatever suffering they're experiencing, in Jesus' name, amen.